All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we are back. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. This is Dario Strange here with Nick Song. And this week, we have a special episode. We actually have uh, the lead actor from Stranger Things, the hit... Uh, surprise hit show on Netflix, uh, David Harbour. And so that'll be later on in the show. And then after that interview, we're actually going to talk about, we're going to try to dissect Stranger Things a little bit. Now that uh, most people out there have seen the series, we've seen the series, going to dive in a little bit deeper. But first, we have a couple of news bits from this week. An interesting bit from National National Geographic came out that they're going to do a series that is an interesting mix between, I guess, documentary and fiction, science fiction. And it's all about Mars. It's being produced by Brian Grazer and Ron Howard. Uh, they both worked on the uh, Apollo 13, I believe it's, that's the name of the film, Apollo 13 uh, film together. And now they've come together for this documentary meets sci-fi film of a group of astronauts who travel to Mars. And I, from what it looks like, it's like they're traveling to Mars to set up a human settlement. They're not just traveling mm-hmm. for kind of like a spot experimentation or research. Right. So we got the trailer this week, and I was pretty impressed. I mean, what do you think? You know, the whole hybrid documentary and scripted series, that kind of threw me off in the trailer. Because I was like, is this like a hypothetical thing that they're doing? Well, obviously it's a hypothetical thing. But it was kind of weird because on the one hand, it looks like there's a story happening. And on the other hand, you have like, I think there was a brief like bit where Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking. And obviously he's been, he's a part of this. So I thought that was a little jarring. That being said, I thought that the production quality uh, for the scripted part looked interesting or, like, it looked good. And, you know, my thought was it's, like, this might be a documentary version of The Martian, except in a TV form format. And it was interesting because it seems like they're going for a really diverse cast for the uh, the astronauts themselves. So that was just, like, it was just an interesting choice because it seems like the lead is an Asian female. Who has a twin sister back on Earth. Helping her, uh, yeah, complete the mission. Uh, also, uh, in addition to Neil deGrasse Tyson, there's also Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, who is on camera, shown on camera, uh, being interviewed uh, about Mars and space travel. And they also have uh, Peter Diamandis, who is the founder of the X Prize uh, competition, which is uh, basically a nonprofit organization um, designed to encourage, you know, uh, tech and science you know, related around uh, space travel. So he's a very real space guy uh, included in the film as well. And I, I don't know. It's like, I agree with you. There's this kind of hybrid approach to, I guess, science fiction documentary. I, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, I feel like, well, that's not quite true. I have seen like programs on the History Channel. Right. I was about to say that, like, you know, the History Channel documentaries that get made fun of partially because they're like, well, this is not documentary this is kind of non-documentary you know right so so it looks like they took that approach but they basically ratcheted up the quality of the 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 production quality the acting the special effects and then just to kind of cap it off they said we're not just going to have kind of uh unknown scientists and and you know professors which by the way we need them and i i'm very happy to see those kind of people in all those documentaries but i guess they felt let's go big 
as possible. And that's why they got these kind of high profile uh, science and tech names involved. I mean, I'm excited. It's supposed to come out um, in November. We know the quality is going to be strong. Um, I'm just the way the hybrid approach has worked on the History Channel. And I think I've seen it on National Geographic. It's sometimes kind of clunky, you know, when they switch back and forth and you, it can be it can be a little tedious. So that, that's the only thing I'm worried about. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this National Geographic thing would be like, yeah, I'm going to stick around for the scripted bit. And then when they talk about the actual bits of it, whether or not people will be, um, you know, uh, interested and drawn in enough to just stay with the actual science bits. And, you know, it'd be unfortunate if they weren't. But if they were to do a thing where it's like a scene and then they talk about the scene, that would just be really jarring and clunky, as he said. So it seems like a good bet. You know, the little brief trailer we've seen was pretty strong. I'm excited. I think it's uh, something like between eight and 11 episodes. I want to say eight, but it's definitely coming out in November of this year. And um, six episodes, six episodes. Okay, And, And it may give us a better insight into just how realistic or unrealistic settling Mars might actually be. So from one spatial body to another, you had some news uh, related to the moon. Yeah. So, you know, going from Mars to the moon, what we saw this week was that the first private firm got permission from the U.S. government to land on the moon, which is pretty cool. Um, So the company is called Moon Express. Oh, that's original. (laughs) Super original, man. The the marketing department, the marketing dollars spent on the name branding of that was just must have been insane. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So Moon Express, um, they're based out of Cape Canaveral in Florida. They got permission from the U.S. government to do a mission in 2017 to land on the moon. Now, this is like the first uh, private company that's been able to do that because you know, up until now, everything that's gone to the moon has been like a national effort. So this is really kind of like a big benchmark moment or watershed moment. Because, you know, we have SpaceX, we have Blue Origin. So commercial space is very much a thing that's going to be coming in the future. So we've kind of reached the point. And it's like, it's, it's very interesting from a geopolitical standpoint, because how do you treat space? And, and all the stuff that you can potentially get from space. Because the interesting thing is Moon Express, their, their uh, website calls themselves like a mining and resource company. Uh-oh. So we've talked about this before. Waylon Yutani, no. Yes. We've talked about this before in previous uh, pod episodes where, you know, commercial uh, corporations and enterprises are going to go to the moon and mine it for the resources. So there's a quartz article where the... Uh, chairman and co-founder of Moon Express, Naveen Jain, was talking about it, and he was saying like we should treat space like international waters, where what you know is governed by whatever international body, but whatever you take out of it, that's yours, and that's just a really kind of, I mean, it's kind of granular, but it's an interesting thing to think about if who's going to regulate the moon and all the things that we take from there if we're not doing government-led or national-led expeditions anymore into space. Well, this is this is going to be interesting to see how the moon stuff develops, because I do know that China has made announcements in recent years uh, that they have designs on the moon, that they plan to set up some sort of uh, expedition um, to travel to the moon and set up some sort of base. So it looks like the moon is about to become like kind of crowded and contentious territory. 
which is interesting because, you know, it's vital to kind of the harmony here on Earth. So I'm a little worried. Now I'm going to put on my conspiracy theorist tinfoil hat. Yes. I love that hat. That's my favorite hat. You look so good in that hat. (laughs) What if China was trying to telegraph this all along with Independence Day resurgence and the moon milk? Oh, God. The moon milk again? Really? We're back? That's not a conspiracy theory. You're just taking shots now. The moon milk? I'm not, okay. No, no. What? Well, maybe I'm taking a little <laughs> shot. But, you know, you know, you telling me that and that coming up in, in a movie, a major movie, I, I, I can't. So you think they're kind of trying to do like a preemptive strike? Like, no, 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 no. We're on the moon first. Chinese, China, China, China we're on well, the moon. What if they're, what if they're trying to, to, you know, massage us? very gently into this idea that they will be the moon rulers. The moon rulers. Okay. Well, I mean, hey, and then you you see a giant uh, Chinese character beamed from the moon that's visible from uh, Earth. Is that that kind of... I was not thinking that, but maybe. Whoever colonizes the moon will have a lot of power in, in just, you know, in terms of satellites, in terms of information, and all that stuff. So, you know, there may just be another race to the moon and see who can actually colonize it, whether or not private entities will be able to be the ones doing the colonizing, or is it going to be a national thing? These are things that we really haven't thought about yet. And I, I think it's, I think it's encouraging that uh, private companies are going to get the ability to go and that it's not just going to be a national, you know, Wow, I've got, I've got, I've got the the Mar. I don't know what the oceans on the moon are called, but I've got that area, and you know, Russia can take the the dark side of the moon or whatever, you know, because I don't want another national pissing contest. Well, because we always have to uh, mix sci-fi with reality. Um, for anyone wanting what I think is one of the best takes on uh, a possible colonization attempt of the moon is check out the movie Moon, uh, the 2009 yes, I movie. Yeah, that was the one you were going to talk about. Yeah, the yes. two, 2009 movie by uh, Duncan Jones called Moon. It's it's just a fascinating look at what it might be like uh, if a private company actually like set up shop on the moon and tried to make it a profitable enterprise. No spoilers here, but it doesn't go where you think it might. And it, it's incredibly well shot. The special effects are amazing. Uh, it's a small film that has big moves. It, it, it's, a, it, it's amazing. It's a great film. Uh, but not for some reason, not that very well known. So yeah, like I, I saw it when it came out and I loved it and I love Sam Rockwell in it, but yeah, you're right. Not a lot of people have actually seen it or heard of it. So with that, we will move on to Mr. David Harbor, who was kind enough to give us his time here on the Mars Magazine podcast to talk about the breakout hit that he is uh, a lead actor in and a um, very important part of the cast, uh, Stranger Things. This is our conversation earlier this week. Hey, David Harbour. Yes. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on the Mars Magazine podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so our time is short here, so I kind of want to dive right in. Um, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, Stranger Things is a phenomenon. This is uh, we haven't seen, I think, anything like this um, from OTT over the top uh, content networks like Netflix, Amazon, in terms of uh, a hit. 
maybe send some House of Cards. I mean, I, I don't think I'm overstating that. I mean, are you? Wow. I mean, I, I mean, that's I, I got to tell you. So there is some geek response, but that's really actually uh-huh. that's just the initial, uh, you know, tremors. I, th- I think this has really gone mainstream. I mean, what um, are you surprised by the response? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. I mean, I uh, I knew what we were making was going to be good, like when we were making it, but. First of all, seeing it, just me seeing it, I didn't know it would be this good. Um, and then the response, I thought people would respond to it, but for it to be a genuine, like across the board, self-generating hit where, you know, there are the BuzzFeed articles that come out like every two seconds about like, what character are you and all these things. Like that stuff, I never thought we'd achieve that sort of hit status. And so I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I've never experienced anything like this, so I don't really know what level it is, but it feels pretty special. Like it feels like people are treating it like it's a very special thing, which I got to say, like, I don't disagree. Like watching the show, I feel like it's a pretty special show. Yeah. And it has, it, there's, I think it has heart, which is something that is uh, sometimes exactly. in short supply. Exactly. What I wanted to like, really quickly, I mean, your background, um, for those who don't know, I think began in, mostly in theater, correct? Correct. Yeah. And so that kind of leads me to my next uh, thing. So you kind of had a, a little um, episode in Central Park uh, with uh, Shakespeare in the Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was doing. Um, we were doing Charles and Cressida, uh, sort of an obscure Shakespeare play, and I was actually playing the character of Achilles, uh, the great Greek commander Achilles. And I was on stage um, in front of two thousand people, and I lunged for Hector at one point, and I felt this pop uh, in my left uh, heel, and my left foot stopped responding to brain commands, and I snapped my Achilles tendon. Uh, playing Achilles. So I went to the hospital and uh, I had surgery and now I'm like laid up with, uh, now I'm laid up with this injury for a couple weeks. So, Well, I, I don't know what the Achilles feels like, but I just want to let you know, just last year I broke my leg playing basketball in Central Park. So we have a connection. No way. Yes, yes, we are brothers. Oh, wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Both got leg problems and Central Park problems. Exactly, exactly. So, but one thing I want to say, so, the nature of the ensemble cast uh, for Stranger Things, I think, is what really uh, not only gives it life, but kind of gives it its, yeah. its heart. And so I'm curious, like, um, you know, in your background, you, I, I know you were nominated for a Tony for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, long ago. Uh-huh. Um, I think in 2012, you, um, you were part of a, a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross production. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, so this is the kind of stuff that I think I think many people are familiar with your work in film. Uh, a couple of, you know, cable network shows like, you know, The Newsroom. Um, I really loved your uh, performance in End of Watch, although, you know, no spoilers, that didn't end so well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But, I mean, what really excites me about your work is that you kind of, you, you bring that theater kind of, um, you, you pull the viewer in with that kind of, the theater approach. So I'm curious, like, what, um, like what, what did you transfer from the theater in this ensemble production? Well, I think that, like, um, you know, one of the things that it, it's allowed me to do, like, to is to sort of take chances with characters or take bigger risks. I feel like you're not so encouraged in film and TV. You're sort of cast a lot by who you are. Like, you know, I, 
I feel like you sort of play yourself a lot in film and TV and they just give you a name and they make you, but like in theater, you're, you have, you have to play like, you know, Achilles or something in a Shakespeare play or Hamlet or, you know, someone in a checkoff play or someone in a farce or, you know, so you, you have a lot more, um, kind of, uh, you're, you're able to take more risks and you're encouraged to take more risks. And I think that that, um, kind of informs the work here is that I, I was able to take, you know, I sort of naturally gravitate toward riskier things. And so he could be seen on the page as sort of a, a, you know, a leading man, but I was able to, you know, really take risks with making him very ordinary in a certain way, making him, you know, in that first scene with the kids, make him really hate children, like things that you wouldn't normally associate with a leading man, you know, things that you can kind of be really, I, I was able to take, hopefully take the viewer on this journey where you really don't like this guy in the beginning. Like you really think he's incapable and also kind of a jerk and kind of arrogant, kind of like, you know, and then really see him grow as a human being. So that by the end, you're really rooting for him. Um, and you really love him. And so I, I think that the way a lot of modern actors get to acting is they get on a TV show very young or they get a commercial and they go to the business and they're not forced to have, uh, not forced to explore, you know, larger texts as we are in theater. And, uh, and they, and if you have early success, you tend to repeat that success as opposed to like, you know, I'm sort of, I'm still an unknown in a lot of ways. And so, so I'm able to, I've, I've been able to develop and be like, this isn't all that I do. I can do so many other things. And my craft has been able to develop. And so I think that's helped me a great deal. Yeah, and so that's actually, um, you you hit right on a point I wanted to get to. So when I first saw you uh, come on screen in Stranger Things, uh, my first thought was, uh-oh, because I know your work. Uh, I remember <laughs> right. as, uh, let's see, uh, Gregory Beam in uh, Quantum of Solace. Oh, right, uh, had a little dirt yeah. on you there. End of Watch, you weren't the nicest police officer. Yeah, yeah I so, play a lot of villains. Yeah, yeah so when I saw you, yeah, yeah, I got a little worried. And then, you know, so because of, you know, I don't want to get too deep into what happens because, you know, if uh, listeners out there, if you haven't seen it, there's just there's so many surprises. And I don't you know, I don't want to ruin any of that for you. But your character arc, I think, is possibly the most interesting character arc of all, because every character in Stranger Things right from the beginning, I think uh, in short order, we kind of know where they're going. We know like okay, yeah. this, you know this is what Renona Wider uh, Ryder is doing. Uh, this is what Matthew uh-huh. Modine is doing, and uh, then you have you know your other cast of characters who are you know relatively new, you know child and I guess teenage actors. Um, but uh-huh. you know in terms of like the people we know, the faces we know, um, right from the beginning we kind of know who they are, except for you. You have this interesting yeah. arc. When you read the script, you know was that kind of part of the thing that pulled you in? Did you kind of in your mind did you think okay? I know how people are used to seeing me, you know, David Harbour is usually, you know, this or that, you know, so did you, were you, did that excite you to kind of like knowing that you would kind of take this turn? Yeah, it really excited me. I mean, you know, I play a lot of villains, like uh, my career has been, especially in film and TV. And, you know, a lot of it's been, my look is sort of like, I have this brow and I have this sort of intensity to me. And, um, and then also just, I have a, I just live my life with a certain freedom, I think, of thought that villain characters kind of have. They they don't necessarily uh, subscribe to the the norms of society. They kind of think outside of it. And I think as a theater artist, I, you know, not as concerned with 
money and things and things like that, that I think I, I have that freedom of thought, but then they just make horrible choices and I, they, you know, they kill people or they, you know, try, they do horrible things. So I think the interesting thing about playing hop is like, you have this guy who lives a sort of villainous life in the beginning. I mean, he lives like, you know, he drinks, he smokes, he hates kids. He's a jerk. He makes fun of people. He, you know, he, he eats too many donuts. He doesn't care about his body. He doesn't care about like, you know, he doesn't care about the things that normal people care about. But then that actually becomes his great strength in the piece is that he's not willing to accept these answers. He's not willing to let Stades tell him what to do. And I think that the same thing that liberates the villain character to, to do the horrible things that he does is the same quality that liberates the Hopper character to allow him to do the heroic things that he does. And I think that's what was so satisfying to play. And it's so, it's such a good part for me which I don't normally feel like, I feel like if you're going to have a, a leading man, there's a lot of other guys you can go to. But in terms of this particular leading man, I mean, this like truly messed up dude, uh, I think, you know, I think uh, it's something that I understand and I can relate to. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what was interesting about uh, your performance is that th- it was very clear, even though there were no, uh, at least I don't remember any flashbacks. I, I could, I could feel your backstory bursting at the seams like i could see this dark mm. you know whatever maybe you know, the city you know kind of cop thing and when you maybe went to uh the small town i i, I don't know it, it just, mm. the writing and, and and the acting it was just incredible so that leads me to my next question the duffer brothers so yeah. the stranger things series i think for many people has been a surprise um and it kind of like for most people i guess not in hollywood circles it came out of nowhere so I'm, I'm assuming some of the secret sauce is the Duffer Brothers. So, what is it about these yes. guys? What, what, what did you? What was the experience um, working with these directors? Um, I mean, they hate when I say this, but I'm going to say it again until the dad dies. <laughs> They're a couple of nerds. I mean, they really are just a couple of film geek children nerds I, they uh they're thir- i mean i call them children they're 30 years old which to me is so young to have such talent and such great writing like they're just terrific writers and the other thing is they they just love film they have an earnest love of the magic of film and that's why i call them nerds because like i'm a nerd in that way too like they uh they're in it to create magic. They're in it to create the experiences that they had as children. Like they have so much heart. Um, they're not concerned with being cool or being interesting or, but they're just concerned with like moving the viewer in the same way that they were moved as children. And, uh, and they're, they're just, you know, I mean, the amazing thing is that in this climate of lots of television, that guys like that, people can take a shot on them. Um, and the fact that Netflix just let them do what they want and continued to support their creative choices, like, you know, even a choice like me as the leading guy, when I'm sure there were lots of other, you know, bigger names than me that were interested in the part. Um, I, I think that the fact that they really wanted me and the fact that Netflix was like, yeah, okay, if you guys want it, we'll do it, uh, is so amazing. But I mean, back to those guys, they are, they're just some of the best writers I've, ever met and and just little you know filmmaking geniuses and also they're just so generous i mean they just cast like i don't think i got i really don't think i got a single note from them for the whole there's one day where they said like can you not 
throw the flashlight at him. Or something. I think I threw the <laughs> flashlight at one of my deputies. I was so pissed at him. Um, but I, I really rarely got any notes, and they just let us do our work, and they did their work. And it all kind of came together in this stew. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of work, and everyone's done a lot, of, and you never really know what the elements are that make these things magical. Right. But, um, but for some reason, this really just all came together and really is a magical experience. And I'm curious, like, um, like a lot of this is like 80s. Uh, you know, my understanding is that there was a lot of work that went into finding authentic 80s props, uh, getting the look yeah. right. Um, so I'm curious, yeah. you know, just from, you know, as someone, you know, you know, not, you know, we don't have to get into age, but I mean, I think some of this stuff is maybe more <laughs> meaningful to you. Maybe you live through some of this stuff. Yeah. So I'm we just curious, did you catch we any feels? <laughs> I'm a child. I'm a child of the eighties. Absolutely. I mean, that was my formative years. Um, um, you know, my aesthetic was sort of built on the eighties. Like I was, you know, a five to 15 during the eighties. So I grew up like I, you know, um, I grew up on Madonna. I grew up on, you know, on these eighties, uh, things. So it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Like the art directions that Chris is, uh, it was incredible the way he captured this and Linda, our props, uh, mistress was extraordinary. Just the things that I would see on set, like little board games or like the telephone with a really long cord in the kitchen that like my mom would always be on the telephone with a really long cord in the kitchen. You'd have you trip over the cord and the cord would get all janky and gross and like, you know, um, all these little touches really did transport me back to that time. Um, and the fun thing is we get to play with the tropes of that time, you know, the characters of that time. And even I feel like, you know, I get to inhabit to uh, the leading men of that time, like, you know, the Jack Nicholson's and the Harrison Ford's and the um, Nick Nolte's uh, of those of those movies, which were the guys that I grew up with and the guys that I really identified with as leading men and the guys that, um, you know, so, yeah, like all of that stuff kind of came together. And so it was nice to be transported to that simpler time. It made me feel made me feel like a kid again over the air you know uh content uh netflix amazon you know i guess hulu now um apple seems to be about to get into the game you know but this is we're in the golden age of television so I, for, as a working yeah. actor particularly someone like yourself who i think you, you have to be one of the hardest working actors in the business i mean yeah. is a is this the golden age of television and what do you think these kind of new networks represent for the craft in general yeah, I mean, I I think it started, you know, it certainly started with like HBO and like The Sopranos and, you know, and and now we really are getting into telling stories that just take up longer chunks of time. So I think what it sort of flip flopped like back in the 80s, TV was sort of a more of a joke and, and movies were really where it was at. But now I think our storytelling, I think movies are sort of... Um, you know, they're just sort of trimmed down versions, a little bit more two dimensional. And we get to have more three dimensionality in television because we get to tell a story over eight hours. So where you might have to tell a story in a movie over two, um, we get eight hours, 10 hours, 13 hours to really explore these characters and explore these situations. And um, I think people are really starting to embrace that. And also um, when you get more, uh, more content, you're not able to get the star that you want. And so you might have to give somebody a shot like, 
like me, for instance, you know? And so you're going to be able to get these performances that are surprising and these, and these actors that are surprising. Um, and I think that's great because you don't, you know, you, you, the star that you want is doing some other project or something and, and you need to go. Uh, and so I think that opportunity always breeds uh, better work. Um, and, and, you know, it's just good, you know, and it's good competition. I mean, I think things are getting better and better. Uh, and there's this, this fire in people where they're like, well, this is good, but it's got to be great for it to really register on the radar somewhere. And so that's, that's a good thing. And you're a New York guy. You're from New York, correct? I am New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are through you still based here? I'm still based in New York. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so does that? Does the whole kind of this new, these new networks and this kind of different way of putting together productions? Does that kind of free you up from the whole Hollywood, you know, grind where you have to be in Hollywood and you kind of have to like touch base there every so often? Yeah, I mean, I think the world has gotten. Um, the world has gotten smaller in terms of like, you know, Skype and the internet and all that stuff. So you you don't really have to be in LA anymore. I don't think, I mean, and also like, you know, different careers are different or for different people. Like my, my career has always been really grounded in the theater career. And I really don't know what to do with myself when I'm in LA. Like I, I, I get nervous when I sit by the pool or hang out at the, you know, Chateau Marmont too long. Like I just get, <laughs> I'm just too much of a freak. Like I just get nervous and like, I feel like yeah, people are too chilled out. So uh, the New York energy is just much better for me. And, and in New York, it feels like I can always kind of jump into a play here and there. And that's, that's what I really love to do because I love to explore my craft and, I love to work with other actors and I love an ensemble. And I just, you know, I fell in love with the theater at a very, very early age. And I never sort of thought that um, I would have the career that I may be able to start to have now with Stranger Things, who have this leading man Hollywood career. But, um, but so that's a, it's a very exciting turn in my career, but it's never something that I ever expected would be, would, would happen. And and just uh, I think I heard that Stranger Things has been re- well is a is going to be renewed. There's no date. Have you heard that? You well, got to tell me. Man. <laughs> that's what I think I've heard. Because I haven't heard that. Well, I, this is just just me reading the trades, and uh, there seems to be some discussion that maybe um there it won't be a news story, but maybe a sequel. But uh, that's all unconfirmed. So I'll just leave that out there. But wrapping up, I know we only have like a couple of minutes. Um, I know uh, you're working on a couple of other things now. Am I incorrect in thinking that you're working on a Woody Allen project? Uh, no, I do. I'm doing a guest spot in his new Amazon series, which comes out. Uh, yeah, I, I did a guest spot um, on, on the first episode. Okay. Uh, just because you know, I've always wanted to. His films have affected me so much when I was younger, when I was a kid, and I, I just wanted to always work with him. It was kind of a bucket list thing for me. So I mean, you've pretty fun. much done it all now. I mean, Woody Allen, uh, the, the, yeah. the, you know, the network stuff, the the TV stuff, the cable stuff. I mean, the only thing left now, I think, is VR. Uh, oh God! <laughs> yeah. So, and then also, uh, I know for a fact that you're part of uh, the new uh, Suicide uh, Suicide Squad film um, that's going to bring you uh-huh. back, or that brought you back um, with your old uh, friend David Ayer. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Was that fun? Uh, yeah, it was crazy. Like I, you know, I like David. Um, he's a really good writer, uh, a good director. Um, um, it was just, it was just huge. Like I've just never. You know, I've never worked on something that big. I mean, the Bond movie, I remember that being big too, but that's British, so they're they're more um, sort of demure about it or something. But it was just so big. Like, there was just so many people and so much stuff that... And I, I didn't work that much on it. Um, 
and so, but what I did, I just remember feeling like it was quite overwhelming what they were trying to do. And I haven't seen the movie yet because um, of my legs all messed up. But, uh, but yeah, if they did what they wanted to do, I think it would probably be pretty visually stunning. And just a real quick back to uh, Quantum of Solace. You have to get a new role mm-hmm. that uh, delivers uh, that <laughs> glorious mustache that uh, your character. You know, I would like to see. Honestly, like I would love to see Greg Bean come back. Like in the original script, he was supposed to be killed uh, for that Quantum of Solace, and they cut that scene out. And I, I would love to see Greg Bean come back in another iteration of Bond <laughs> and do something nefarious. So. You know, if there's any Greg Bean fans out there, let's get let's get him back uh, in the Bond series. I would love that. I'll bring back the mustache. I promise it'll be more glorious than ever. Well, David Harbour, I really appreciate it. Um, from the upside down and and now to to, to reality, uh, you, you got to get used to these geek terms: upside down, reality, all that stuff. Uh, you know, whatever, uh, wormholes, that kind of stuff. Um, I really appreciate you joining us and. Um, Get well soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. And so now that we've heard from Mr. Harbor, we're going to dive into the show itself. Stranger Things. Something is coming. Something hungry for blood. What is it? Will is, is missing. I don't know where he is. 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. What about the other time? The one. The one. And so that's just a bit of Stranger Things. Um, We kind of, uh, Vic, you and I saw this kind of um, not on the same schedule. I kind of blew through it early on. I was all over it like a cheap uh, wetsuit uh, (laughs) that you would use to uh, submerge yourself in a tank to go to the uh, upside down. Uh, Inside joke for Stranger Things lovers. Uh, But you finally got through the entire Netflix Netflix series. What'd you think? I loved it. It was insane because, you know, we talked about Stranger Things just when the trailer dropped and, you know, we weren't really sure what it was at first, like, because it it could have easily been a fantasy type thing or a supernatural thing. Um, And then when I was watching it, it was just a very, it it felt like putting on a nice, like your favorite sweater that you kind of forgot was in your closet for a while because it was all the things that I love. It was very John Carpentery and feel. It was very Stephen, uh, you know, both Steven Spielberg and Stephen um, King in, in that feel. And just the whole thing about Stranger Things, uh, just as a format that's interesting, is because it's such a throwback to those 80s horror films, but it's on this new distribution channel in terms of Netflix. So, like, I just thought that juxtaposition, like just when I was watching it, that juxtaposition was just really, it it was just interesting. And one thing that I was kind of sad about was that, you know, if Stranger Things had been on a traditional TV network where we only get one episode a week, you know, there would be a lot more like theorizing, like what's going to happen. Oh, totally. Like, you know, like, oh my God, who is 11? What are these things? But because you can binge it, and let's be clear, I binged it over like one day. That wow. was just one. Wow. That was just like 
Well, you know, I watched the first episode and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. I need to watch more. But, you know, uh, adult life has adult obligations. So I couldn't. But as soon as, like, the, the, the weekend came, it was like the next seven episodes nonstop just blew through all of them. And it was just so good. And so what's interesting about this is um, it came out of left field, as I said in the uh, interview with uh, David, that it, 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 no one really expected this to be a big deal, mainly because it's an ensemble cast. And even the names we know are people who are talented and we know their work, mm-hmm. but they, they, they're generally not associated with uh, lead actor roles. So we have Winona Ryder. Um, uh, David Harbour, of course, and Matthew Modine. And we have, of course, other adults, but those are the, the three, I would say, primary adult uh, actors. And the rest are kind of uh, teenage and, and uh, child actors who, you know, as we've said on this pod before, just uh, amazing, just amazing performances. Um, Millie Bobby Brown, who played Eleven, uh, my boy with the missing teeth in the front, uh, Gaten Matarazzo, uh, who plays Dustin? That's my boy. Uh, Caleb, yeah, he's my favorite kid too. Yeah, Caleb McLaughlin, who uh, plays Lucas Sinclair, who uh, just you know, the, the amazing slingshot skills. <laughs> uh, Finn Wolfhard, who played Mike Wheeler. I mean, just just amazing performances uh, all around. One thing I want to say about what I think makes Stranger Things it just like takes it to the next level because you know I don't think it's the only movie that like pulls on nostalgia for a certain era. But what I think really elevates it is how it subverts certain, uh, you know, things that you take for granted from movies in that era. And, like, I think the the example that comes straight to my head is the character of Steve, who's uh, Nancy's kind of douchey boyfriend. In the, I hate in Steve. The... With a really? deep passion. I hate Steve with a deep passion, yes. Because, like, the interesting thing about Steve is that I think, you know, when you watch the old 80s movies, like, I don't know, like Breakfast Club or, you know, like, from that era, you're supposed to hate characters like Steve a lot because he's not, usually they're not, like, well-rounded characters. They're not really people that you can relate to. But I found that I, I was so pleasantly refreshed yeah. that Steve was, you know, he, he was this kind of this asshole but he had a human side to him yeah. and he actually seemed to genuinely care about Nancy and you know when his friends were being a dictator he you know kind of pulled back and like rearranged his um he rearranged his priorities to be a decent person yeah yeah i mean you you're i 100% agree with you there there it what it does is it takes a lot of these 80s tropes and plot lines and it does seem to use what is it? What thirty years? How many years since the eighties? Thirty years, right? I think it's thirty uh, years, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it takes the thirty, the interim thirty years, and it doesn't pretend that those thirty years, you know, haven't happened. So it takes that 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 time span and how we've matured as an audience and as a culture, and it actually takes the eighties tropes and goes to that next logical step that we didn't take in a lot of these films in the eighties. Like you said, like, uh, you know, uh, Steve is kind of like the douchey guy. And I got to tell you, he could, they could have taken him from a time machine. He totally looks like that eighties <laughs> douche guy. I hated his guts. And even though there is like a turn in his character, I didn't like seeing that when I saw the the end, you know, how he ended up, I was like, God damn it. You know, I just, I wasn't happy about that. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, just before we go further spoilers for stranger things, um, uh, in the interview with David, we 
you know, avoided spoilers, but from here on out, you know, spoilers. We're just going to dive full in. Um, so I think the dynamic, the dynamic that you were talking about with, uh, Steve is also apparent in Jim Hopper, the sheriff, David Harbour's right. character, because where he kind of finally, you know, realizes the truth. Normally, I feel like maybe he would kind of go to the dark side and maybe kind of like reluctantly help. And if he helped, there would be kind of like some negative kind of end point mm -hmm. to his character arc. But not only does he kind of go through with the full thing, but then, you know, uh, the epilogue of the whole thing, which creeped me out, like really creeped me out, was <laughs> when he's leaving the food, you know, oh, yeah, for yeah, 11. Oh, yeah, leaving the Eggos. Yeah. <sighs> That creeped me out because I was just like, wow. So, so I, you know, so yeah, it does take, and then Winona, Winona Ryder, it didn't just allow her to be the frantic, crazy mother. It gave her not just an arc, but a fully developed arc because she went from crazy, frantic mother to, well, actually, totally I, justified. 100% justified. Yeah. Um, although, I say, you know, I guess we're kind of going too far ahead, maybe too fast, but. I'm sorry. Let's let's just uh, talk about it. Will Byers at the very end uh, when he's in the bathroom by himself. Oh, and then coughing up that slug. I mean, mm. whew, that was that was that was rough stuff. There's not like true, you know, hardcore horror involved, but there's a lot of like um, I think that's kind of where the Stephen King thing comes in. There's a lot of. You know, if you let your mind wander with the concepts involved, you're terrified. Oh, for sure. Especially with, um, they did a really great job with the, how the, the upside down looked. Right. In terms of it's our world, but wrong. Just right. wrong. Like old and like decrepit and snow falling. And it's, it's, it's clearly toxic to us. That whole shadow world, it reminded me of a bunch of other horror movies. Like, uh, I guess the one that comes to mind first is Insidious. Um, oh, yeah. With, you know, like that definitely, I, I got some PTSD from, because Insidious gave me some nightmares. So I got some PTSD back to that uh, type of thing where it's a world that exists on our plane, just one that you can't see. Shout out to Barbara. Shout oh. out to Barbara, uh, who's actually the, the actress's Barbara. name is Shannon Purser. Shout out to Barbara, who has somehow uh, garnered, uh, not somehow, uh, with, with good reason, <laughs> garnered a little fan base. I think what relate what resonated for a lot of people was that not only did she look spot on like an '80s high school kid, but <laughs> I mean, she you don't really see her character, her kind of character, represented on screen very much. Um, and it was represented well. It wasn't like a one dimensional character. She had beats. She had depth. You know, there was, there was an arc to her character. And, uh, when you actually saw how she ended up, you know, in the upside down, I was genuinely, uh, I felt genuinely bad. Like it wasn't just kind of, oh, yeah, she died, you know, kind of like in a slasher movie. Oh, that one's down, you know. No, you know, it was like genuine sadness. It, it's, it's really sad because she couldn't like reach out to anyone or like the fact that she was missing was, was, it went unnoticed because, you know, in the world that you and I live in today, she would not have gone missing that or like we, she would have been noted to be missing so much earlier because, you know, Nancy would have been texting her. Her mom would have been texting her. Where are you? All this sort of stuff. But it's not like that was something that really struck me watching it because, you know, uh, just the fact that growing up with cell phones and all that sort of stuff, you're never you're never you're never given the opportunity to be missing for more than like an hour 
or something with your parents. Like you can constantly be in touch with everyone around you and just that isolation and, you know, the kids talking on the, the walkie talkies, all that sort of thing. It just really kind of honed, honed in for me, like the difference between then and now and how connected and communicative we are now compared to then. Yeah, absolutely. It really, I think the Duffer brothers did a great job, not just wink nudging at the audience that, Hey, look at this old technology. No, they really showed us, Hey, this was a time when, you know, texting wasn't so easy and, you know, people didn't generally have uh, mobile phones. And you also get to see how like that, in a sense, is another character. Like the the absence of certain technologies mm-hmm. allows for more mystery. Um, you know, for instance, when um, uh, Joyce Byers, Winona Ryder, uh, you know, she breaks her, you know, dial, her um, rotary phone, oh. and then she has yeah. to go buy a new one. I had a lot of fun with that. I mean, I'm, I think I just rewatched that scene a few times just to kind of watch her open the box and like hook up the new rotary phone because I was just like, this is weird. This is fascinating. Like, this is something, yeah, I, I haven't seen a rotary phone in like a million years. Like, this is amazing just to see her deal with this. Um, I also heard someone, um, say, uh, some parent on social media say, um, they were watching it with their kid and the kid said, you know, what's a record player? What, what, what is, what is he playing that thing on? Like, what, what's going on there? And it just never even occurred. I mean, because we still have DJs right now who still yeah. use turntables, you know, not all of them. A lot of them use CDs. A lot of them use computers. But there's some, you know, DJs who still use turntables. And but no, there are little kids who are watching this. And yes, I do think even though there's some horror involved, this is completely kid friendly. Well, I, look, I, uh, I take no responsibility <laughs> if your children have nightmares <laughs> and if you go to therapy. But I think, you know, if I had, you know, a sister or a brother with children, I would say, yeah, sure, let them watch this. And, um, yeah, it's just imagine being, you know, whatever, six, seven years old right now watching Stranger Things and looking at a rotary phone, looking at a record player. I mean, ham this radio. Yeah. Ham radio. This this must seem like it's a hundred year old uh, <laughs> technology that's uh, being rolled out on screen. And that didn't really occur to me. So that's I mean, the way the Duffer Brothers handled that in an authentic way, but not a wink nudge kind of because usually when this stuff comes up in modern uh, cinema or TV, it's kind of a wink nudge kind of joke. Like, look how stupid this was. Like, look how clunky this technology was. Um, So I want to get into some of this. uh, The upside down part of the show um so so basically why don't you lay out what the upside down is so the upside down is like if you could imagine whatever room like you guys out there whatever room that you're sitting in right now and just like turn down the instagram filter to like a really cool palette and just it's our world but wrong is the best way i could describe it it's just a world that looks like your home and the places that you go into, but everything is dark and everything is slightly off. It looks like everything has been decayed for a while and it's devoid of people, but there are monsters who live there. So it's like if our world just was completely eliminated of humans, but you had some insidious, like all the monsters that you thought were going bump under your bed at night, that's where they live. That would be the upside down. And when the three uh, badass kids who are trying to find their missing friend who has gone missing in the upside down world, when they try to figure out or when they determine that he may, in fact, this may be one of the holes in the plot, because 
I feel like the way they came, I think they were referencing some comic book and they, the, the way they came to this, uh, hypothesis that he might be in the upside down, it was kind of a leap. You know, they kind of, it was like a convenient oh, the, leap. You mean, you mean the Veil of Shadows? Yeah. They, they kind of, that was. The Dungeons and Dragons reference? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when they go to their, uh, high school professor and they ask him kind of like for a, uh, explanation of how this works, um, what it sounded like what he was talking about was wormholes and singularities. Mm-hmm. And he uses the, um, very familiar by now, uh, example where you take a piece of paper as the plane of our universe and then you fold the paper on itself and then you take a pencil and you, you know, jam the paint- pencil through and that represents a wormhole and that wormhole represents an opening into this alternate reality or because, you know, there's, there are theories out there that, uh, wormholes may be entries, uh, entrances into other, uh, alternate realities. And so that's how the teacher, um, explains it. And in keeping with that theory, he says, you know, it takes like a great deal of energy to open this portal or whatever. And so, you know, so that's kind of like where they and so that's kind of flimsy. It's not like the strongest um part right. of the show. But, I, you know, I'm happy they at least attempted to give some explanation as to like what the upside down was and that it just wasn't some supernatural thing. Uh, they did give it some, you know, scientific basis. And then we go to the government facility, which um shows this kind of rift in reality that leads to this other world, um, which for some reason you need, I don't know, a tank, some sort of spacesuit to uh, travel <laughs> well, in. I think, I think they say the air is toxic, which is, oh, know, right. raises other questions as to how Will survives in a radioactive, I don't know if it's radioactive, but they have hazmat suits on. Uh, but you know, how does a child with no suit survive for a week? I think about a week is how long he stayed there. How does he survive that toxic environment for that long? Well, you know, I was about to say without repercussions, but there's clearly repercussions at the end of the season. The government facility, though, like, what was your take on on that in terms of, like, do you think we could engineer kids by, you know, drugging up their mothers on LSDs to have telepathic and telekinetic powers? For those who haven't seen the entire thing, uh, Winona Ryder is trying to figure out where her son is. And I can't remember how she got the tip, but she figures out somehow you've seen this uh, more recently than I have. But she figures out um, the whereabouts of the mother. Hopper figures it out because he's looking at news clippings and he kind of comes across that facility. Right. He goes to the library, figures that out. And so they travel to the mother of this other person, this other child who went missing. And then they find out. Well, basically, it's revealed to us that, you know, there were tests test done and she's not she's catatonic and it, basically it's like a, it's kind of it reminded me of fire firestarter uh stephen king's firestarter where you take this little girl and you do all these tests and you like you know mess her up and give her these powers there are rumors i asked uh david harbour about this um if there was a season two you know mm. what was happening and he indicated he wasn't sure um we're hearing rumblings that there will be a season two and uh in the Hollywood press that there will be a season two and that it um, will likely be a sequel, which is interesting because um, when you look at stranger things, even from the beginning, before we, you know, before the series was released and just from the trailer and just everything about it, it seemed like uh, an anthology style show. It seemed like something that would kind of package these kind of stories in seasonal, you know, bits. 
But um, we're hearing that, you know, some of these characters may be back and this will be a kind of continuation. I have to say, as I mean, this is maybe I guess this is probably the, the best thing I've seen from Netflix. I'm going to go ahead and say that I'll I'll go ahead and go that far. For me, this is the best thing they've done. And I have high praise for Netflix. I love a lot of what uh, what they do. Um, however, as much as I love the show, I I want to see something else. I don't know. I feel like this was done very well. I think they, you know, not everyone is happy with the ending. I was happy with the ending. Um, I'd rather see them tackle something else. I'd love to see the Duffer brothers return. Um, I want to see David get more work. <laughs> absolutely. Cause he's awesome. Uh, also Winona Ryder. I'm a huge fan of Winona Ryder. I don't care. I heard some critiques about, Oh, she's frantic too long in the, in the series. I don't, yeah, you leave Winona alone. <laughs> you leave her alone. Winona did her job well and I love her and she, she rocked it. Um, but. I don't know. I think I'm ready for, you know, if this was done so well, I'm ready for something else. If they do bring it back, I'm, I, you know, I, I guess I don't have a problem. I mean, I'm on the opposite side, actually. Like, I felt that the last episode just left a lot of threads hanging. Like, I want to know what happened to Eleven. Is she, is she actually eating Egos in the woods that, that Hopper's left her? Or is he just doing that out of guilt because he Landowed them and, and, uh, gave away her, her position? to save will uh i want to know what i mean like if you're gonna cough up a slug in the sink will's got some issues that are coming for him even if he can hide it from mom and bro and then you know i want to know if steve sticks around (laughs) oh wait one one last thing before we uh wrap up i do have to ding the series for one thing one thing this is my only like i this is a fantastic show series I can't recommend it highly enough, but let's talk about that monster. Okay. okay. Let's okay. talk about, uh, um, uh, little shop of horrors meets, I don't know, Groot. Like, like <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, it just, it, I'm, I, I'm not in love with the monster. I mean, it was scary, you know, but I think that was more based on context, lighting and kind of great acting by the humans involved. But the the monster itself i mean basically we're talking about uh i don't know it looked like some uh humanoid with a flower face with teeth on the petals with it's a tongue kind of like it's kind of like a portable sarlacc monster there's a star wars uh, return of the jedi that little pit monster right 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 thing. it's like right. a portable sarlacc that just walks around that could have been done a bit better however if you want to be forgiving, you can just kind of say, well, remember, it's in the 80s context. And in the 80s context, that would be an amazing monster. That would be That's like, true. you know. That's true. Now that, you know, I never thought about whether I was scared about the monster, like just by looking at it. Because I remember feeling quite, like, not scared, but I was on the edge of my seat when uh, Jonathan and Nancy, you know, when they go into the woods for the first time and she goes through the uh, the tree, the tree stump portal. And she's taken into the world and he's the, the monster dude is eating the deer and they can't find each other. That scene totally creeped me out. Oh, by the way, shout out to Jonathan Byers, uh, also known in real life as Charlie Heaton, with the early 80s MMA skills to put the hurt <laughs> on that ass uh, with Steve. I mean, that was I didn't expect that. I mean, I know he was a dark brooding photographer. 
Uh, you know, but jeez, I mean, he like, right? I mean, that that was I didn't expect yeah. that, man. Well, like, I mean, I gotta say, I gotta say, I feel bad for Jonathan at the end of well, not really because he got his brother back and he was super happy about it. But you know, he's he was there for Nancy the entire time, and she's still with Steve at the end. I was like, ooh. All he needs is a lens and a pack of smokes. That's all he needs. No woman needed. <laughs> Just him and, and a lens and a pack of smokes. But yeah, so yeah, hopefully um, we will see. Not hopefully. I mean, this is possibly one of the highest rated. Uh, if you go by some of the movie websites, this might be one of the highest rated shows uh, ever. Not just of uh, this summer, but ever. So we're definitely going to see a return. It's just a matter of how it will return. Will it be the Duffer Brothers? Uh, will our friend David Harbour return? Winona Ryder and uh, the awesome, uh, you know, the rest of the cast, will they return? Um, that remains to be seen. But um, I think, you know, maybe the larger point is game over. Netflix is here. Netflix, yeah. you know, I mean, at this point, I mean. They got I, some networks shaking in their boots after this. Yeah, I mean, HBO right now ha- is in the middle of a show called The Night Of, and it's being highly praised. And I've seen it. I love it. It's great. But I'm sorry. Like Netflix is officially, um, I, you know, I mentioned um, uh, Marco Polo to David Harbour uh, and he wasn't aware of it. But, you know, hopefully, you know, that's another fan that I just created because, you know, that's another show that's on Netflix that's just insanely good. Um, so this is, you know, to me, this is kind of like the final proof that, you know, no, House of Cards wasn't just a little fluke. You know, you know, this is this Netflix is serious. And, um, you know, got a bunch of props at the Emmy nominations. I think I forget how many they got, but they got a buttload. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's industry stuff. So, I mean, you know, sure, it's good to get awards, but I don't really I never base, you know, the where the cultural shifts are really going based on that stuff. I mean, I only sometimes watch the Oscars, but I mean, you know, the proof. Well, yeah, I mean, but the proof is in the quality. Okay, and this is what, you know, as I mentioned to uh, David Harbour, this is not just a geek fan film or fan series or or loved by geek fans. This has gone mainstream. I have people that I know who are arguing about, you know, Barbara's glasses and, you know, and, and, you know, just the the, the reality of like friendships in the 80s. I mean, this is like a mainstream thing. This is this is this has become big. So I hope they don't drop the ball with season two. It's always a valid fear, the sophomore slump. But as far as first seasons go, this is one of the best first seasons I've seen. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to see maybe some movies from the Duffer Brothers, who, by the way, are twin brothers, for those who don't know. Oh. Yeah, they're twin brothers. Um, so maybe the key is to have an amazing uh, sibling. Maybe that's the, 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 the trick. Well, then... Well, then I'm boned because I'm an only child. So. Yeah, same here. Same here. <laughs> Maybe we can uh, adopt each other and become honorary uh, siblings and then start cranking out the, the amazing films. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. That works. <laughs> so that works. let's do that. Yeah. So with that, we will call an end uh, to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can visit us on Twitter at Mars Magazine and also visit the website at MarsMagazine.com. For the pod, this has been Adario Strange with Vic Song. And we will see you in the future. 